listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM. It's Monday the 7th of December. Lovely to have your company. I'm Becca Posterino. The 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference is now underway in Paris in an effort to determine frameworks for universal climate action. Back home in Canberra last weekend, the Climate Action Rally attracted a crowd of approximately 5,000 people who marched from Parliament House down Commonwealth Avenue and finally gathered at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Perhaps its inconvenience to Canberra Sunday traffic was overshadowed by the call to action of this small group. Climate action sparks various debates. However, today, we link the voices of Indigenous elders and their youth to global issues the Paris Conference will undoubtedly influence. I spoke with Phoebe Howe, Assistant Director to Communications at Conservation Council ACT, for a local insight on climate action. I also met with an Indigenous elder who offered his insights. Finally, I met with Roxley, a young Indigenous activist and educator who defines links between climate action and Indigenous issues. You're on 2XXFM 98.3. The program is subject to ACT, exploring Canberra's local current affairs. Stay with us now. Phoebe Howe from ACT Conservation Council is up next. Phoebe Howe, welcome, Phoebe. Hi, thanks for having me. Just with the upcoming rally on Sunday, uh, what is the aim of this rally? Yeah, so the People's Climate March is an international event. So obviously the um, UN negotiations on climate change are coming up on um, Monday in Paris and across the world there's been a call to action um, to build our um, community movement for climate change. Um, solutions all across the world. So there's going to be communities hitting the streets um, in national cities all across the world. And here in Australia, we'll have massive events in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, all across the country. So Canberra's joining that big international moment. So the aim of the People's Climate March is to put pressure on the decision makers that are walking into Paris. Um, But we know, of course, that um, you know, the UN negotiations are slow and that um, we're not likely to see a huge shift in policies. What we do know is that Paris is a very exciting moment for the world because we're likely to get an outcome from Paris that gives us a framework. I don't think that the targets that will be set to cut emissions globally will be enough to keep a safe climate in the future, but what it will give us is a framework. And if every single political leader that comes home from Paris um, is coming home to... Um, you know, media about marches, about thousands and hundreds of thousands in the streets calling for climate action. Um, they'll see that there's that community pressure, that the focus of the community is on climate change, that it matters to every one of us, and that over the following years we're going to be calling for our leaders to do more within that framework that they set up at Paris. So here in Australia, we do have a new Prime Minister, um, so we're interested to see what that Prime Minister will be taking to Paris and if everything anything shifts. Um, but we're also um, getting ready for an election in 2016 and making sure that climate change is on the agenda for every single person who's standing for office. Um, And most importantly, we're bringing our community together and we're bringing new people into the climate change movement. We know that climate change is more urgent than ever. The science is showing us that climate change is moving alarmingly fast um, and that on our current trajectory with the amount that we emit every year globally, um, we're looking at a pretty um, worrying future. So we need to be constantly engaging the public, um, raising awareness, educating people, and these events are a really fantastic way for people to come, hear from great speakers, um, learn more and be inspired to act as well. And Phoebe, this uh, climate action that you're calling for, the Paris Framework, will this put pressure on our Australian government uh, to make the climate action that you're calling for? 
Absolutely. So um, an international agreement um, of any kind will help to put pressure on our government. Um, so we know that in the last year, very excitingly, some of the really big players in the climate change issue have been taking action. So the USA, China, some of the largest emitters in the world have been taking really significant steps and um, setting up domestic emissions reduction policies. So we're seeing an international climate where there's the potential for a real agreement because in the past a lot of people have said, well, until the US does something, until China does something, what's the point in acting? And really we've, we've come to that point in history where everybody's getting on board now. So um, as the Australian government will absolutely be put under pressure. Um, this Paris Agreement is coming out of um, already submitted targets that about 170 nations have submitted to the UN um, framework on climate change. So we know that most of the world is going to be covered by this agreement. So there'll be no more excuses. There'll be no mm -hmm. more um, saying that, you know, we're taking action before anybody else is. Mm -hmm. um, that those days are over. So, mm -hmm. um, and the other great thing about setting targets is that, um, you know, I was hearing um, uh, the leader of the um, climate... Oh, sorry, I'll start that again. Mm -hmm. um, so the other really exciting thing about setting targets is that we know that whenever um, a city, a local region, um, whatever it might be, whenever someone sets an, an aim to reduce their emissions, it generally happens faster and cheaper than they first expected. Um, so that's really exciting. We've seen that happen in places like here in Canberra. We've set some really exciting emissions reduction targets, quite ambitious ones, just for our region. And um, in doing that over the past three years, we've seen drops in, in our emissions and um, we've been surprised by the renewable energy that we've purchased at a cheaper price, for example. So um, all of that means that there'll be pressure put on the Australian government and we'll start to see that shift towards looking at the solutions and how we deal with this problem rather than sitting on our hands and doing nothing. Climate action, uh, why isn't it on the political agenda and why has it lost traction? Um, I'm not sure that it's lost traction. I think the issue with climate change is that it's one of those huge, complex issues that is with us, you know, as time goes on. So, of course, you know, when you look at media cycles, um, you know, we're always looking for the next big issue and, um, you know, climate change is going on day after day. Um, and sure, we see um, evidence of it through very dramatic extreme weather events that might hit the headlines, um, but it is one of those challenging things to continually look at because it's, it's just... Um, around us all the time. Um, I do think that concern about climate change is steady, however. Um, you know, we're constantly seeing that um, climate change um, is around in the polls, um, in work that the CSIRO has done on opinions of Australians. Certainly people, you know, um, waver a little bit in whether they think that it's caused by humans and so on, but we're seeing that it is consistently up there as an issue that people care about. So I don't think climate change is going away on the political agenda. Um, it's just sometimes hard to see where that movement is at. And that's why um, these moments like the People's Climate March are so important. Um, when you see um, a single day when hundreds of thousands turn out across the country, those um, concerns of the communities all around us become visible. And one of the things that I get excited by is the fact that the community is actually showing a lot of leadership. And this doesn't hit the papers because often those stories are really small ones. Here in Canberra, we've got some brilliant community groups that are doing things like putting together Canberra's first community-owned solar farm. Um, we've got community groups that are getting out there and um, showing um, their members how to make their homes more energy efficient. So these things aren't really sexy news mm -hmm. a lot of the time, but um, they're going on day after day after day. So here in Canberra, at the end of our march, we're having a festival of solutions to celebrate the work that's actually being done by our community. And I think that there's a groundswell of action happening at that local level, especially when people get frustrated with how slowly things move at the international level. Mm. So we need that system change to come from political decisions and policies that, that can affect um, 
the pollution that we see at the national scale, but we also do need those individual changes to happen and they're happening on a large scale around us. I was at the Tenet Embassy this morning speaking to an Indigenous elder and I wanted to ask you the question of including the Indigenous voice in the conversation for climate action. Does the Conservation Council uh, value that um, voice of the Indigenous as part of this global um, conversation and, I guess, global action on climate change? Absolutely. So over the 30 years that the Conservation Council has been around, there's been various um, local environmental campaigns where we've worked with different Indigenous voices over the years. Um, And when it comes to the climate change movement internationally, I think you've seen the growth of um, the voice of um, Indigenous peoples in many um, places across the world over the past few years. So... um, I think that there's two things there. One is, of course, um, different cultures um, of Aboriginal people um, have a very strong connection to the environment and a very strong sense of stewardship and care for place. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot to teach um, many of us about Mm -hmm. how we need to interact with our environment when we're dealing with um, economies that, you know, rely on um, resource um, extraction and consumption. um, There's a lot for us to learn as human beings about how Mm -hmm. we can exist on this planet um, in a different way. Um, But another thing is that Indigenous people have been right at the forefront of um, really immediate um, battles for things like um, land being opened up for coal mining. So, um, you know, Indigenous people have been dealing with issues of um, land rights for a long time. And one of the big things that happens here in Australia, you know, the major cause of um, our contribution to climate change is around our exports of fossil fuels. And, um, you know, a lot of those big mines and projects open up in um, more remote areas and often that overlies with, um, you know, traditional owned Mm. lands. Um, So there's some very exciting... um, Uh, campaigns that Mm. um, have seen Indigenous people take a lead role and I think that they can really show us a lot of, um, you know, have a lot to teach us in this area. Mm. Absolutely. Has there been any significant shift in climate action since Malcolm Turnbull was elected? Well, unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of hope for change. Um, We all know that Malcolm Turnbull, um, you know, when he was last in power as the leader of the opposition, um, was, you know, um, publicly in terms of his language committed to climate action and was working towards some sort of a policy. However, since coming to power as Prime Minister, um, there's been no shift in the government's um, targets, for example, for emissions reduction that they're taking to Paris. So the government has committed to take a um, target for the year 2030 of a reduction of 26 to 28%. Um, and that's actually measured from a different baseline year, which is, you know, this is all very technical number stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, an emissions reduction target is critical because you've got to measure from a baseline, you know, what percent- the percentage of what, you know, what's, what's the percentage mm-hmm. that we're reducing from. Now, our last um, commitment that we made under the Kyoto Protocol, um, which was past agreement under the um, United Nations climate discussions, um, was 5% off a 2000 level and these new targets for 2030 as the year that we're aiming for are measured off a 2005 baseline and what that means is we're measuring from a year when our emissions were higher so mm-hmm. if we say 28 percent it doesn't mean quite as much mm. um, and that's really disappointing um, to see that kind of um, sleight of hand happening um, around something that's so important and as I say there's been no change to that position since Malcolm Turnbull's come to power. So what are the current issues relating to climate change? Well, specifically. Yeah, I mean, climate change, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the impacts. And these are the things we're all aware of that you see on TV, you know, extreme weather, um, droughts, uh, rising sea levels. Um, and we know, I think, 
quite intuitively that those things have a big impact on our economy. You know, when we have to um, recover from large flooding events or large bushfires, that, that has an, an impact on our economies. Um, but more importantly, of course, on our communities and our people, the immediate health impacts of heat waves, of, 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 um, of emergencies that are related to weather events um, are really severe. But underneath that, there's more complex issues. You know, climate change, I um, come to see it as a, as a multiplier. It multiplies the impacts on a lot of different things that we care about in society. So, for example, food security. You know, we know that we've got a rising population and we need to feed the world with more food. We've still got poverty and people um, dying of hunger. And yet, um, our food security is going to be weakened as um, we're less able to produce more food across the world with changes to our um, weather systems as the climate warms. Um, and then through that, you, know, you can go even more deep into... Um, you know, when there's resource unavailability, we're more likely to see civil unrest. And so there's threats to the peace and security of different regions around the world. Um, of course, forced migration and, and refugees are a huge issue um, internationally at the moment. Um, you know, one very topical issue that's been discussed a lot recently is um, the Syrian crisis. Um, one element of that is that before civil war broke out for a few years, there's been a very severe drought there. And some mm. work was being done by climate scientists to try and trace whether that um, drought was, you know, mm. falling within um, expected norms of droughts in that area. Mm. But they're starting to see that there's a, a more severe pattern of droughts um, starting to hit that, that part of the world. Um, and of course, there's many other issues that link into what causes something to break into civil war. But climate change can be a multiplying impactor that puts more pressure on us. So really the, the big issue around climate change is that it impacts the way that we live, it impacts our societies because it impacts the resource base and, and the environment upon which we all depend. Um, and, you know, you really can't... Um, look at, um, you know, just one weather event alone. You know, there's the systems that we live in that mm. it impacts. And here in Australia, of course, there's, you know, threats to the iconic places that we love, like the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. You know, great, uh, the reef systems across the world are threatened by climate change as water warms and the oceans become more acidic. Um, we have many other, you know, endangered, um, beautiful native um, species and ecosystems that are put under more pressure as we mm. have, you know, changes to our weather patterns. And of course, um, you know, we... Uh, dealing with these specific changes to, you know, longer, hotter, drier um, droughts and, and summers and so on. And we all know that that means bushfires and all of those ongoing impacts that we're very familiar with in Australia. I like air's ingredients Just the way they are I like air's ingredients Just the way they are Oxygen Listening to Subject ACT, 98.3 FM, 2XX. That was Irish singer songwriter Enda Riley with his rather jovial climate change song, 
Oxygen 21. Coming up, Indigenous elder and Ngunnawal custodian Uncle Pat and Indigenous activist Roxley bring the climate debate back to country. I'm Becca Posterino. Good morning, Uncle Pat. Good morning, and how are you today? I'm well, thanks, Uncle Pat. How are you, and where are we at the moment? Right now, we're sitting in a little office on the Tent Embassy, Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. We're here at the closing of a large meeting, a very large meeting that just took place here among Aboriginal people from right across the country. We had two law women in and two lawmen here to oversee proceedings, which was very, very constructive. A little bit disappointing that we never see more of the locals, but I mean, people can come if they want to, and all it was was a conversation, just to sit down and have a normal conversation on what is wrong with the local communities today. And that's right across the country. We all have the same problems. We're all facing the same thing. We have a number of different campaigns going on, although they're not all the same. We don't seem to get together and just have that very important yarn to find out how we can repair things. Some people are chasing the high profile life by their attacks, they're heading into governments, they're heading overseas, I mean, and our actual fight's here in this country. It's not over there. Why do we waste money to run overseas when we need it here? Uncle Pat, what was discussed at the meeting? What was so significant and constructive about this meeting? Well, for the first time, there was no, in the meeting, there was no animosity shown. There was a lot of anger laying around as to what's happening to our communities. But we went past the, the personal issues and looked at our community as proper people. I mean, Aboriginal people are always been resourceful and sustainable living people. We've never needed a great deal of the luxuries that people live on today and we needed to bring it back to basics. As was described, we weren't writing a mission statement as in the past. We were writing facts and conversations that took place that affect us in a day-to-day -day life. It's a, it's a repeat, this is a repeat basically of Vincent Langano's walk-off at Wayville, where he argued on all the social issues that affected a community, his community. Well, this now is a national issue that affects our community. Our organisations have been downgraded. Money, money has just totally been wasted. Why would we spend $600,000 on a New South Wales State Land Council election and yet they get less than 25% of the voting members voting. That's a clear message that New South Wales is sick and tired of all the stuff that goes on within the land council structure. As I pointed out to the people, and I spoke to the chairperson of the state land council with complaints that was going in about a particular land council, and this is a regular story, a daily, daily story, 
And I said to him, I said, well, when are you people as the elected reps are going to go out there and support your communities and do something and, le and show some leadership? The answer I got was the Land Rights Act protects, uh, presents them from doing that. They can't do it. They can't, they can't intervene. So why do we elect them? Why do we spend so much money to put these people up when they can't do nothing for the grassroots? The same with ORIC. ORIC now is a federal body that runs organisations. It's supposed to be the Register of Aboriginal Torres Strait Island Affairs. You go to them and they'll watch, they would rather sit back and watch an organisation go into the ground without lifting a finger. And that is because of the CAPS Act. So why do we have these departments? Why do we have them wasting lots and lots of money that could be spent, worthwhile spent, on Aboriginal communities, Torres Strait Island communities, and whatever happens and works in our community can work in the general community. Because people at the grassroots level are all on the same level. They're not separated. It's just that we've been separated by the government government policies that prevent us from living as, as neighbours. My name's uh, Roxley Foley. I'm the son of Gary Foley and Carol Matthews, descendant of the Gumbunjaneer tribes and Ambuka Heads, but born and raised at the Ghana communities of based around Adelaide, um, which are my homelands where I was born and raised. More recently here in Canberra as the sacred firekeeper and uh, custodian of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and here to kind of get people connected here in Canberra. Now, I've been asked, asked today to talk on a couple of uh, subjects. Um, first and foremost, why we're supporting the uh, climate justice rallies um, coming up this Sunday, which we hear are going to be really big, and that's a little bit exciting. And also to draw some of the connections between Indigenous rights and um, climate justice. Now, on, on the first note, um, we had the climate change organisers come in and ask, to, ask us... Uh, to help lead some of their blocks and to maybe give a few talks and we sat them down and gave them a bit of schooling of how they had to engage more with the local communities that we're not just here as a pretty face when the climate marches come along and and to move away from the elements of tokenism and more into the realms of continuous continuous engagement and talking and learning because uh, if you really want to get on board with this you have to understand the long ecological and environmental histories of this country. The main reason we wanted to support these marches is I've always been a firm believer that uh, big marches are a great way to let off steam and to draw attention but these marches are worthless unless you add on to that the ability to connect connect, network and organise after the march and the climate change rallies will be having a whole bunch of stalls and spaces where people can come together after these marches. We have to make sure that these um, events aren't just something where people come out, blow off some steam and then kind of hang their head in shame afterwards and go well that didn't really change anything because these are opportunities, a good time for people to come together, get to realise that they're not alone, meet other people who are fighting along the same issues, and then continue that struggle onwards. And also to bring in a lot of new people that haven't engaged in this elements before. So it's a good opportunity to sit them down and make sure they're entering in a productive uh, realm and sort of do it, doing this in the right way. Can you talk about what you think people could be doing to make those changes and to actually start engaging in this issue? 
Well, I, I think that's a good question. Um, when we talk about grass uh, grassroots change, people often um, think about issues of recycling at home and, like you said, those small changes we can make in our own lives. Now, that's fantastic and that has to be done, but I think that takes away and encourages people not to be worrying what's happening outside of their own doorsteps, that the true grassroots level of... Um, of doing these things is actually built around community blocks um, because unless we're functioning as a community on these levels and we're not we're only just distant distancing ourselves we're still falling into that same sort of capitalist mentality of only look out for the individual don't worry what's happening behind your own uh, don't worry what's happening outside your own doors and it's really important to do these on more fundamental community levels not only because you can affect a lot more but it's also a heck of a lot more efficient um, as I say many hands makes life work and it means we don't all have to struggle to do all of the things ourselves when we're all working together as a team we specialize in what we're most efficient at and um, we can have a much lar larger effect. And especially when it comes down to the fact that it's actually large-scale communities that are currently uh, under attack in a lot of these um, front lines. Um, the climate justice movement and this particular march is important because unlike a lot of these um, climate change rallies and so forth, there's a specific focus on the effects of those on the front lines, which in many cases are Indigenous peoples, um, the peoples of the South Pacific who are going to lose their homes and actually sort of expanding this bubble away from how does it affect me personally. Climate justice isn't just about how it affects you, it's about knowing we have a responsibility as a global community because those on the front lines are going to be the hardest hit and it's not just poor developing countries, it's the poor, uh, poor and working classes in our own nations. It's well established that if you've got enough money, you can put yourself in a bubble and you can protect yourself from these changes. But most people are not in that, in that position. So unfortunately, those with the pa most power and influence, they don't care about making these changes because they can, they, can, they can ride it out and it will just put more pressure and in some obscene way, it actually provides more chances for them to profit by creating new ways to cater to this demand and this market of this change. But we can, we can harness on our knowledges that we already have People are talking, it, it's not just about creating new technologies, but harnessing our old knowledges and finding the essences and patterns of those knowledges and putting them in a, in a new context. We're not talking about giving away all of our modern technologies and going back to live in the bush. We're talking about understanding why these, no, these um, knowledges were important and why we did it. And by understanding that, we can modernize that we can modernize that knowledge and put it back into an efficient pattern and in order to start doing that we've really got to go back and start rewriting our history books we're still in a situation today where our history is uh, promoted as this noble savagery where we we still hear this line that we were nothing but hunters and gatherers well most mo modern academics today and well more importantly than our modern academics, our elders can tell you just how extensively the environment was managed in this country. It w it's known to be as one of the 
most heavily regulated estates on the planet. And just because it didn't conform to a European sense of farming, of fences and monocultures, monocultures, which I might add, led to large unbalances of nature and massive amounts of pests. Um, the high level of tech, of what I'll um, phrase as technology of those days was about understanding the ecology and making it work for you. You don't, we need a second industrial revolution that isn't based around machinery and materialism, but of understanding and harnessing the, the ecology for maximum efficiency. Because, heck, you don't need to sit there on a production line if nature itself is your production line. You can, it's, well, incredibly efficient. And it was based around um, an evolution of an ecosystem that had got to that level of efficiency by evolving over millions millions of years. Even today, the most modern engineering and um, even in some cases um, software programming uh, emulates natural biology. That's because we've realised that that biology has come to such levels um, of perfection and efficiency, so we don't need to um, recreate these things. We just need to look deeper to what already what already exists. It's always taken immense amounts of pressure, whether that's um, by the people or by the international community to make the changes. Addressing this issue and coming to a conclusion about it is one of the most fundamentally important because it will empower us for the rest of our nation's lifetime to always make that change. That was Indigenous Alder and Ngunnawal custodian Uncle Pat and young Indigenous activist Roxley tackling Indigenous views on climate action. We look forward to opening up the conversation to you on Twitter, hashtag SubjectACT. You're also welcome to like our Subject ACT Facebook page. And tomorrow, Robert Goldsborough brings his flair to Canberra's current affairs. I'm Becca Posterino. Have a wonderful week.